Throughout history, free thinkers have outraged the religious with their wacky ideas about the virtues of free speech, reason, and of course, eating babies. Now, God is dying, and it's time to dispose of his remains. From the pits of hell, Satan sends two puppets of the imperialist West and the Zionist Jews against God, Islam, and tiny kittens to bring you their propaganda and conspire for a new world order. This is Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment with Ali Rizwi and Armin Navabi. Welcome everybody to another episode of Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment. My name is Ali A. Rizvi. And with me is Armin Navabi. Armin Navabi, on a scale of 1 to 10, how triggered are you feeling today? Triggered for what? Uh, anything. Just it's, yeah. I'm not going to tell you what you're triggered by. It's your own truth. Um, zero. But, but triggered people don't admit that they're triggered. So what's the point of even asking? Well, if you're that, that stoic, then I, there's nothing <laughs> else to blame but toxic masculinity. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. So Armin. Armin and I are here. And so, yeah, we're. Uh, this is something that we've um, been doing for a while. So those of you who've been following us, you know that uh, we have a three-part series underway uh, on the differences between the Sunni and the Shia. If you, now this is, the, all three of them work as a standalone. So if you haven't heard the first two parts, that's fine. Uh, you, you can still take part in this. But if you do want to check it out, the links are in the description here. Um, part one, we talked about the history of the Shias and Sunnis and how both of these sects of Muslims uh, evolved and developed and how they were born. Um, and in part two, we talked about the theological differences and the differences in their beliefs. And uh, we actually got a lot of amazing feedback on both of them. So I think people really, really enjoyed those two. So this now we're going to actually dive and into. And also a lot of Muslims that told us that we have no right talking about these things because we're not Muslim. Right, right. right because we have to believe. To which I answered, I'm like, are you only going to get somebody to talk about Greek mythology who actually literally believes that Zeus and Hera lived on Mount Olympus? Right. <laughs> no, you won't. You'd no. likely not get a good account from them. So no. we are the, the perfect people to hear about this. In fact, I would oh. venture to say that we are probably the leading authorities in the world on this topic. <laughs> okay, you're going to make I'm, a lot of people I, angry I, with that. That's the whole point. Yeah. I'm being, that's Sunnah, right? I mean, Muhammad made a lot of people angry too. Right. <clears throat> I'm being facetious. Okay. Or am I? Anyway, so so anyway, so we have this three-part series, and what we're going to do today is uh, today we're going to get into the politics of it. There is so much to talk about, so I know that we have a limited amount of time. Uh, we don't want to lose you guys' attention, so I think what we're going to focus on mostly today is the proxy war. You have the center of the um, the the Sunni thing in Saudi Arabia, and you have the center of Shia power, theological power, let's say, mm. a theological political power of for the Sunnis in Saudi Arabia, theological political power for Shia is in Iran currently, and there's a proxy war, and everybody's kind of involved in it, it's a big mess. So, But let's we're give some context before we get into the modern era, like how do we get Iran to become the center of Shia Islam, which a lot of Shias outside of Iran would hate that we're saying that, right? There are some yeah. Shias outside of Iran that think Shia, Iran is like Shia paradise. A lot of Shias outside of Iran that think like, no, fuck Iran. It doesn't represent Shia Islam, right? Uh, and a lot of um, many Sunnis outside of Saudi Arabia, actually more Sunnis outside of Saudi Arabia that don't think Saudi Arabia represents Sunni Islam. I, I uh, was going to say, yeah. But, that... but at the same time, when it comes to political power, Saudi Arabia is the center of... Sunni Islam. 
This right? is interesting. So I, yeah, I want to actually qualify that a little bit more. That's a mm. really good point. Mm. Now, with Iran, the thing is, you know, what you said, yes, I'm sure there's some Shias who reject Iran, mm. but most Shias around the world, especially right. I know in in the Indian subcontinent and in, in uh, India and Pakistan, Bangladesh, and these people, they really look up to Iran as a center right. of Shia spiritual authority. And in contrast, most Muslims. Hate Saudi Arabia. Yes, they hate them. Most Sunnis, Shias, everybody, even the Sunnis, they feel like Saudi Arabia has misrepresented them because Saudi Arabia is in love with America. They're greedy for oil. They have completely like uh, their monarchy is uh, full of like this material greed, all kinds of shit. So So they just don't like Saudi Arabia. Even like even Muslim um, uh, imams, even Muslim. Politicians like Ilhan Omar, they are constantly raving against Saudi Arabia. So Iran has done a better job at PR among Shias than Saudi Arabia has done among Sunnis. There are a lot more Shia imams that are loyal to Iran than Sunni clerics that are loyal to Saudi Arabia. However, However, there are like, even though the percentage is higher, there are many Shia imams that don't like Iran's government, like Shirazi's Shia imams, for example, are anti-Iran's government. Yeah. But a, lot, a lot of the Iraqi, the ones that in Iraq don't like the uh, yeah. Shia. And a lot of it is politics, power, you know, competition. But overall, Iran has more, Iran's government has more influence among Shias worldwide than, and there's, mm-hmm. than any Sunni authority. There, you could argue that there is really no Sunni authority. Uh, yeah. Iran's um, like Khamenei, for example, is a huge religious leader with a with a significant influence around the world. Again, not every Shia believes that he is like a holy figure that needs to be followed, but the the number is significant. There are and, and, uh, the, there are millions uh, of people outside of Iran that are willing to die for him. Right. Yeah. So the thing is that when we talk about how popular they are among the the. Shia sect or the Sunni sect, depending on whether you're Iran or Saudi Arabia, that is a completely separate issue from how much political influence and ideological influence they have. So right. Saudi Arabia, for instance, um, most Sunni people don't like Saudi Arabia. They feel like it misrepresents them. They don't like the image of Saudi Arabia around the world. Um, it makes Islam look bad, Muslims look bad, all that. But the Saudi theological influence, the Salafist influence, and the Wahhabi what? influence around the world has been actually much much okay, more powerful but we're getting okay but we're getting ahead of ourselves Let, let's just put some context right why why did iran become shia because iran was sunni for most of the islamic history right it bec- just really quickly um you know the shia ideology is shia mythology is great for rebellion it's just like we talked about um in the previous two episodes about this, we kept on talking about Hussein and his martyrdom. Uh, and we, we mentioned that in this episode, we're going to see how it's used over and over again, right? Uh, the fact that the if you go back and listen to some of the stories that we mentioned, you, you see that throughout the history between Shias and Sunnis, Sunnis were in power. Shias seemed to be the ones that were being oppressed, wrong. Um, that made... That led to a lot of stories not just Hussein stories many Shia mom stories that uh, people keep Shias keep repeating keep remembering about how Sunnis oppressed them wronged them they killed their leaders but especially Hussein above all else Hussein's death and 
second, second to that is also Ali's death and Fatima's death are, con are constantly mentioned to Shias about to show you how the powers that be are against you and how just like Hussein rebelled against the authorities, we need to rebel against our authorities. And this the fact that you know it, it's so it's the way that it works is genius. Even though it's nobody is intending it to be genius, it's just how the meme works, right? You don't have to convince people to go rebel. You just have to first spread the stories and just you just make people emotionally attached to these stories. And then when you need them to rebel, then you just play with those stories, with those mythology, and it just fits so perfectly. And you can see the Hossein story was used since. The Safavid Empire, right, that came and made Iran and Shia, those stories were used, right? And the reason Iran became Shia, right, Iran was invaded by Arabs and Iran became an Islamic, uh, it became Islamic. But Iran always, the Iranian people, and I mean, I'm not saying this, to, like, this is not patriotism like i'm from iran okay but i know a lot of iranian nationalists love to say this this part is true there's a lot of parts that they exaggerate but this part of it is true um the iranian people always saw themselves separate from the arabs they wanted to keep their national identity they wanted to see themselves as different from the arabs that that, that, that invaded them and when the with the safavid empire came the Shia ideology was a perfect opportunity to have a separate identity. Throughout the Islamic history, Shia stories, Shia, um, because the people in power, the people that ruled over different nations uh, invaded by Arabs were Sunni, Shia, the Shia sect was the perfect tool to use to get, get people to rebel, like take Islam, but rebel against their religious leaders. It was always the per the perfect tool for people to get people to rebel against the religious authorities at the time. And Iran did the, Iran. It was it was first the Egyptians that were the first uh, Shia empire, but then Iran took it and ran with it and became a Shia became Shia during after the Safavids. And they went back a little bit Sunni again after that, but then they went can back. You, can you talk about the 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 empire? What the Safavid Empire? Safa? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it started. It's very interesting because every time somebody comes and says like, "Hey, we're Shia now," instead of Sunni, they always claim that they're the Mahdi, right? Even with Khomeini, we saw that a little bit. But this, but uh, but the leader, the founder of the Safavid Empire, also mentioned said that they all have to claim the Shias are obsessed over bloodline, right? The Sunnis are like, what the fuck is wrong with you and an obsession with over bloodline? We, we brought Islam so that we don't have to think like monarchs anymore, right? But the Shias always have to find a direct line uh, bet between the ruler and the and Muhammad to show that because the whole point of the Imams being yeah. uh, the leaders instead of the Khalifa was because they had they were from Muhammad's family. So right. and for those of you who actually follow the uh, who have uh, heard the second part of this, uh, we talked about the importance of the Ahlul Bayt, which is the, um, the, the it's the uh, the family, the family in the house of uh, Muhammad, the right. Prophet. So because of that, because there's so much reverence accorded to the the Ahlul Bayt, the, the, mm. the family of the Prophet, there is that uh, there is a lot of importance accorded to the uh, bloodline. Right. The fact that anybody and, who's descended from them. So even today in Iran, the, the leader, 
has to be a descendant, a demonstrated descendant of Muhammad and right. have a direct bloodline. The, the, the Safavids were Sufi to begin with. That's why they were called the Safavids, right? But they, they also had an obsession over Ali and uh, Ali you know, as their leader. And then eventually that obsession over Ali made them become hardcore um, Shias. And that's why there's always this love-hate relationship between Shias and Sufis. Right. Because, you know, they took a lot of the Sufi love for Ali as very similar to worship. They don't call it worship, but it's very similar to worship. And that's why Shia Islam has, you know, took a lot of things from the Sufis. But still, right. Anyways, um, they call it Irfan instead of Sufism, by the way, in Iran. In Iran. Um, so that's that's just gives you some context. Um, by the way, Saudi Arabia became so looking at Saudi Arabia and why it became what it is today we have to understand that Saudi Arabia was not very the place where Saudi Arabia is today um, was not very important for a very long time right um, Saudi Arabia is is a very very new country like Iran is an ancient and used to be like the identity of being Iranian is an ancient thing uh, Saudi Arabia is not even a hundred years old as a country, right? And through ever since the Arabs became an empire, uh, nobody put their capital in Mecca or Medina. Like that was the least important. Even though that was the part, the place where they had to go for Hajj, for uh, to 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 Kaaba, it was it was in the middle of fucking nowhere. Like no, there was no capital there. There was no p political advantage to be there. Um, only recently it became a big deal because of all the oil there, right? Uh, in fact, we know based on the recent episode we had with Tom Holland that that's, you know, the fact that the city, I mean, that's another conversation. But it was never an important place. Even though it was the center, everybody pointed to there to worship. It was never a huge political interest for anybody to take over that land. Mm -hmm. And, and we will like I, I I will get into a little bit later how when Saudi Arabia became politically influential and a big well, economic it was a, it was the oil and even after the discovery of the oil it was still not that important because oil wasn't that expensive it was after World War Two and switching from coal to oil that all of a sudden yeah. oil became very very it was. It was really after the uh, the when it became really really rocketed. So the 1970s were a pivotal decade for the Shia Sunni right. conflict and for just general Islamic political power in the world. Okay, so in 1970s, the, one of the things that happened was in in 1973, uh, you had one of the wars between the Arab uh, the Arabs and the Israelis, right? So Arab, in that 1973 war, uh, there was a boycott, right? The Arabs they um, there was an Arab oil boycott of the the U.S. and the Netherlands, hmm. and the and Saudi Arabia had joined it because um, it was a member of o OPEC, which is the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. And then it was after the war that the oil prices actually exploded and went up really high. So Saudi Arabia got a lot of its oil wealth and became a massive power. It started like in the sixties or something with the formation of Aramco when the when the U.S. moved in to start like uh, helping them get the oil out and start using it and selling it. Right. But really, after 73, 1973, is when Saudi Arabia became massive, and uh, that's also when they helped with a lot of the funding along with Pakistan. Right. Um, 
and to that, to the Afghan war, which is the Soviet Afghan war, which we'll also get into. In a bit. And at that time, before the 1979 Islamic Revolution in Iran, Saudi Arabia and Iran had a good relationship, right? Yeah. Uh, to be to be, they were both proxies and puppets, basically, of the uh, United States. Like United States had three uh, major players in the Middle East under its control, right? It was Israel, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. All three were U.S. allies. And because of that, U.S. had full, almost full control of the commodity at that time, right? I mean, ever, ever since. Uh, and it, I mean, you couldn't have any, been any better for United States until um, 1979. And the Islamic Revolution happened. I mean, a little bit before it, because the Shah in Iran all of a sudden like was playing a little bit, you know, hard to get with the United States with the oil. Um, so the you know the powers that be decided that, I mean, the Islamic Revolution is was you know supported by Western power, which is a lot of people don't know this, right? Because the Shah was you know acting a little bit, you know, playing with nationalizing oil and all that stuff, right? So making it independent um but then i think obviously they all regret what they did right now because now they have no control over iran anymore right um but 19 so you said 1973 but 1979 when the islamic revolution happened in iran that is i think the most important thing that happened ever since which put the tension between ever since then the tensions between sunnis and shias have been on steroids right well it became bilateral yeah it became so there was at first it was like unipolar where you know saudi arabia was really the central economic power right. in the arab world and the muslim world generally it was all saudi arabia mm -hmm. and then uh, after that when in 1979 in terms of at least political influence right mm -hmm. uh, iran became a massive threat in a way and that started the proxy war. And there's another thing that happened in 1979 um, yep. that scared the, the shit out of the Saudi Wahhabis. Arabia. Yeah, but that was because of the revolution. In no, the no, 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 not just oh. the Wahhabis. There was uh, in 1979. So the king, king, uh, who was the king at that time? Was it King Khalid? Um. Yes, uh, it was King Khalid, right? So there were there were two things that happened around in 1979. One was the Iranian Revolution. Right. Okay. So now there was like this massive like Shia powerhouse right. that was in the region, which uh, really, really. Well, it wasn't got... powerful yet, but we'll because it was. Yeah, but it was, was broke. Good, but, they... but we'll say well how it became powerful. But well, yeah, we're, we're going to talk about it. But they didn't care. Like they were taking. They had American hostages. They were openly confronting everybody else. And then the second thing was happened was the Masjid of Mecca, the right. Grand Mosque, was sieged. Right, but that in, was because uh, of the Islamic Revolution in Iran. Well, they they believed that the Mahdi came back, right? So no, well, I mean, before that happened, right? So you have to understand the Islamic Revolution in Iran was a huge source of inspirations for Muslims all around the world. The Muslims around the world were were having a crisis of identity. Okay, uh, ever since World War One. There were no Khalifas anymore. So the last Khalifa that ever ruled, like this was a the, to not to not have a Khalifa in the Islamic world, is historically in the Islamic world unheard of, right? You always had a Khalifa for the Sunnis, and then after World War One, with Ataturk came and like all of a sudden Muslims were like, "What the fuck is happening to us? We don't even have a Khalifa anymore, right?" And ever since then. 
the Islamic world went down, 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 became more, you know, compared to the rest of the world, they looked very backwards, right? They looked like they, they, used to, they had this history of being an empire, taking over the world, um, having the house of wisdom, having the golden age of Arabs and all that, that stuff, always being in power. God is on our side. That's why we're winning. And now non-Muslims look like they are dominating the world. The non-Muslims look like they have all the knowledge, all the power, all the resources, and they're just being used like pawns and they can't even control their own destiny and they have, uh, and they're like weak. And you have to understand that, again, we mentioned this last time, I'll mention it again, again, in, in, the, Sunni, in the Sunni mindset, it used to be that God is on our side, that's why we're winning. Technically, it's the other way around. Because they were constantly winning, they had to come up with an explanation. So they always understood. Their understanding is like God is always on the side of the victor, and that's the reason why we're winning, right? So um, because they come up with an explanation for why they're winning so fast and taking over so fast. But the Shia's mentality, because they were always wrong, because all their leaders were always being killed, poisoned, beheaded. And they would never get to be in power. They are they they built their understanding, their theology that we're that God is on the side of the oppressed. We know. So the Sunnis are like, we know we're we're on God's side because we're winning. Shias were like, we know we're on God's side because we are the oppressed. We are the ones that are being wronged, right? So that was their identity. But when Sunnis all of a sudden lost their Khalifa, so does that mean that God is not on your side anymore? So this is this is cause a crisis of identity because they don't have a Khalifa anymore right and but then fast forward to 1979 when Shias all of a sudden win the Islamic revolution and now they're having making a government their their understanding was like we can't be in power because first because we're the oppressed right like that's supposed to be in their in their theology that we can't be in power unless the Mahdi comes back and this is why historically before everyone every time that somebody wants to be in power as a Shia they had to say like well I'm the Mahdi but Khomeini tried to play with that but I think it wouldn't sell um, so they came up with a new excuse to change the ideology and they built the idea of Velayat al-Faqih like they comp this is why they call it Khomeinism it's a new version of Shiism which some Shias really hate because some Shias think that we cannot have a government we cannot have a Shia government until the Mehdi comes back Iran is doing it wrong but Khomeini came and said no you got it all wrong for 1400 years we have to hold a government for the Mehdi until he comes back we are his representatives until he comes back and that's so is yeah. that what so Velayat al-Faqih right yes. which is a sort of a central element in uh, the authority in Iran. Yes. What, okay, is that exactly what it means? It means a holder of the government until well, uh, the it means comes the guard, um, uh, the juris. So velayat faqih is like the juris. Let me see how, what the actual translation would be in 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 English. Velayat So velayat is the like vali, right? Mm -hmm. So means like the leadership of the jurist, I think. The guardianship of the Islamic jurist. That's the translation. Okay. So if Vilayat is like the plural, I think, of Veli, is that right? So that's like yeah. the guardianship of the Islamic jurist. So basically, uh, Khomeini argued in his books and his sermons and his writings that 
it should be the it should be the Islamic jurists that run the government. That that's the only I don't I don't know how he uh, justified it, given that um, for so many years that was. But he said like it, the only logical sense. In fact, he changed his. Uh, we have writings of him saying uh, before the Islamic Revolution, accepting the role of the Shah, which is so contradictory, like uh, to what most people know and of. The Shah, the Shah was a U.S. friendly secular dictator Any Shah. that ruled Iran. But, okay. No, because because in during before Khomeini, like you have to understand, what Khomeini did to Iran was like. Uh, a huge crisis of identity for Iranian as well because for 7,000 years Iran had a Shah had a king had a monarch and then Khomeini comes and after 7 I'm not talking 700 okay I'm talking 7,000 years okay this is the, was the first time where Iran didn't have a Shah okay so even during the Shia well Mossadegh in 1953 no but the Shah was, was out no no but the Shah was still outside like he wasn't dead he was just not in Iran for a while, and then he came back, even during Mossadegh. Right? You're muted. Yeah, keep keep going, keep going. So yeah, so, but but so, um, but even during the Shia when the, we the Shia Imams during when we had Shah, they were like, yeah, we need a Shah because we Imam the Imams cannot be in the government, and we need the Shah to protect, just like the, uh, you know. Mullahs in Sunni countries said that we need the Khalifa uh, to protect us and get, create an environment where Islam could, uh, you know, we could teach Islam. The Shias in, but at least the Khalifa was an Islamic thing, right? The Shah wasn't. So the Mullahs never said that, never claimed that they should be in power until Khomeini came. And he had an Islam, he won, so you're like, okay, shit, we're in power. So we need an excuse for being in power. And he, he created that excuse. A lot of Shias. A lot of Shia leaders in Iran didn't like that, okay? And a lot of them were killed by Khomeini's, um, you know, um, loyalists. So this is this is a, this is revolutionary even in in the Shia world. That's why some people call it Khomeinism, right? Um, but now um, Khomeinism is a very popular part of Shia Islam. Like it's not like a lot of people agree with that. Um, so. But the reason why I'm saying that what happened in Saudi Arabia was a, was a result of what happened in Iran is because originally when Khomeini came, he didn't sell it as a Shia uprising. He sold it as, a, as an Islamic uprising, right? Even though he had anti-Sunni writings before the Islamic Revolution in Iran, he completely ignored that. And he called for unity among Muslims. And because Sunnis around the world, Muslims around the world in general, we're thinking that this this you you know United Kingdom and United States these superpowers they're just put, moving us around like like chess pieces and we have no control and we have we are not in power anymore to have a, a Khomeini come and remove one of the chess pieces of United States like which was the Shah to come and re topple a government that was a U.S. ally. And say fuck you to the United States and win and stay in power. That originally, eventually, they considered him a Shia. But originally, Muslims all all around the world saw that as a source of inspiration. That wow, we can finally we see some uh, there. We can somebody could say push back against the United States and win. 
And this is like Islam versus the West, Islam versus Kufr and the infidels. And a, a victory in any sense. It didn't matter that they were Shia. It was a victory and they were supporting Khomeini, right? But then eventually got... Uh, so And Khomeini himself never saw this as an Iranian revolution, okay? Eventually it was rebranded as an Iranian revolution. But Khomeini was an anti-nationalist. Khomeini hated the concept of Iran. Khomeini only saw Islam, mostly Shia Islam, okay? And, you know, hidden Shia, but it was about an Islamic revolution, not an Iranian revolution. And he did not think this, this revolution is supposed to end at the borders of Iran. This was a revolution that was supposed to be passing Iran's border, especially going into Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and everywhere else it called exporting yeah. exporting the revolution and this is the, no, the, but this was also and this was actually also uh, strategically uh, it was also a huge thing in terms of extending Iran's regional influence right. because there has historically been a Persian and Arab rivalry right they've always been at war there's been an ethnic element uh, to the Persian Arab conflict now the thing is you can't take Arabs and you can't turn them into Persians but you can turn them into Shias. Right. Right. Well, I mean, so this is what, so there's three different things happening here. And that's that. Yeah. That's the thing. There's it's three. the Shia versus Sunni. And you know, where the, where the lines are drawn are always a little bit blurry, but the, you know, the Venn diagram is very close, even though it's not exact. So it's Shia versus Sunni, Arab versus Persian. Persian. Yeah. And Iranian versus non-Iranian. So it's ethnic, religious, and nationalism, right? All of them, and the good, the the great thing about the 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 advantage that the Iranian government has is that it could play with all of these three, depending on who the audience is, right? Yeah, that's like the, the Theodore Herzl. They learned a lot from him as well. It was very very similar. It's the same kind of crossroads between ethnic and right. uh, so, nationalist and uh, and uh, so, religious. All three of them. So you could tell some people, oh fuck the Arabs. We're Iranians, right? But then if you go to Shia Arabs, they're like, no, fuck the Sunnis, not the Arabs, right? Fuck the Sunnis, we're all Shia brothers, right? But then if you're talking to the Iranians' nationalist sentiments, you're like, oh, fuck these foreigners, you know, um, you know, we're Iranians. So depending on your audience, like... It, the, the, you, you could mold your message. Right, but the core is the same because the core is the demagogue's same. wet dream. Yes, yeah. but the core is the same because most Shi most Iranians are Shia, and most Iranians are Persian, right? So the you know the the core is the, the all three of them align. Even though it keeps moving around a little bit, the core is the same. But the reason why in 1979 we had a we had an uprising in Saudi Arabia as well, which was the same year. They never told us this in Iran. They never told us this in Iran. It was wiped away from our history books. Because the because the Saudis were inspired by the Iranian Revolution, and the the Saudi regime was terrified by the Islamic Revolution in Iran. Because what was Khomeini's message? Khomeini's message was that this is a movement against monarchy and against your United States puppets in the region. And what was the Saudi regime? They were monarchs. And there were United States puppets in the regime. So they, and they weren't very religious. 
That's and, another thing. Right. They were known for their they material so excesses and their and their sort of dismissal of Islamic religiosity. They were so similar to the Shah of Iran, right? And this is where Hussein's story keep coming in, right? Because Saudi Arabia is a Sunni regime ruling over minority Shias, right? Minority Shias in Saudi Arabia are over are exactly where all the most of the oil in Saudi Arabia is, right? The, so, the eastern part of Saudi Arabia, the eastern part of Saudi Arabia, where Al Khobar and Dahran and Dammam are, like those triple sort of uh, triplet cities. Mm -hmm. That's also where Aramco is set up, and that's where all the oil comes from. Yeah. So Iran had its propaganda blasted on radio in Arabic for Saudi for the Saudi consumption, right? And this is what pissed off Saudi regime. Iran started broadcasting to people in Saudi Arabia to rise up against their Yazid. And this is the, so, you know, Hussein had a rebellion against Yazid, right? As if you remember, that was part of the stories that she has uh, keep telling uh, their children and you get brainwashed with, right? So the Yaz okay, for people that haven't listened to our previous episode, Yazid was the evil guy and Hussein is the Shia leader that rebelled against Yazid. And who the Yazid is ch keeps changing. So when the 1979 Islamic Revolution happened, the the stories were like Shah is the Yazid and we're the we're the soldier, we're the army of Hussein. And then when the when the war we'll get to the war between Iran and Iraq and, as well at some point. But then Saddam became the Yazid. Yazid was perfect because Yazid, Saddam was uh, Sunni and there was a Shia minority. There was a Shia, no, no, there were a minority, but they, he was ruling over the Shias in Iraq. And in, in Saudi Arabia, it's perfect as well because you had, again, the rulers were Sunni just like Yazid and the minority oppressed were the Shias. But the people, but the, even though the, the branding was Shia, the, 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 the um, that Wahhabis were also still inspired by Iran because they say they saw it's possible. They saw they saw what Iran did. They toppled the government, right? And you have to understand in in Saudi Arabia, we have two. As we mentioned, Saudi Arabia is a marriage between two houses, right? You have the house of uh, Saud and you have the house of um, Wahhab, right? Um, and for many years, these two these two groups of people played, you know, built Saudi Arabia from scratch. Like it was a literal marriage between these two houses that built Saudi Arabia. But recently, before 1979, because Saudi Arabia was so pro United States, um, the House of Wahhab was the, their power was going getting less and less. So just to understand. The Saud the, the Saudis, the House of Saud represents the monarchs, the capitalists, the people that just needed some religious legitimacy to stay in power, but they weren't religious themselves. They were people that were controlling the money, the oil, they were the traders, that's all they care about. And the Wahhabis were the people that cared more about religion. They wanted to make sure that everything is run by Islamic rule. And they were the ones that were giving the Saud, the House of Saud, the, the religious authority that they need to stay in power. But because the House of Saud was now had a new buddy that was giving them legitimacy, which was the United States, they were like, you know, we don't need this much religion anymore. And Saudi Arabia was looking more and more Western. Like they had McDonald's, they had, you know, women were getting more and more influential. You had women newscasts, you know, 
Actually, so just a, this is a minor point, but right. Saudi Arabia actually did not have McDonald's until after the 1980s. Well, so, oh, because it was run by um, Jews. That's what we heard when we grew up. The two things we didn't have there was Coca-Cola and McDonald's because apparently those, con- okay. those companies. Okay, but they had a lot of Western brands. Oh, they food. had yeah, everything else. Burger King. I think we had Hardee's. We had Pizza oh. Hut. We had all the other stuff. We. Yeah. So you were McDonald's, there. McDonald's. No. Huh? Wait, when you say we, because you were there, like your family was there. Yeah, yeah I was there. I mean, I I remember the uh, I left the first McDonald's opened yep. there sometime in the nineties. Right, but you're talking post nineteen seventy nine. I'm talking about before, during the nineteen seventies. It yeah. looked way more Western. Like yeah, it, until the, until the late sixties. Yeah, it was right. it, w- it, it was w- very. It, yeah. That's why when MBS says that he wants to move Saudi Arabia back to the Saudi Arabia of 1967. I, and and this uh, is know. why Mohammed bin Salman blames Iran for Saudi Arabia becoming very religious, right? This is what he said, which is he's, he's a little bit, which is a little bit true, right? But, um, but the Wahhabis were like, what the fuck is going on? Like, are we, like, are we not here? Like, can you guys see us? Like, we, we are, we're, you know, we're the people that made this country. Like, they felt like they were being ignored. But, when they when they saw what happened in Iran, that gave them some um, inspiration, and they went and they one of them captured Kaaba, right? Right? Do you want to tell that story? Uh, yeah. Can you can you start? Who captured the Kaaba? Well, who are you saying did it? I, I mean, one of the Wahhabis. I don't know his. I forgot his name. Yes, he did. So, oh no, no, I thought for some reason I thought that you said that was it was the Shias, but it wasn't. No, no, no. So what happened was that. Again, as you said, the 1979 thing was very inspiring. So when um, in 1979, this is when King Khalid, who was before Fahad, he was the one who was uh, the king in Saudi Arabia. And at that point, for the reasons that you talked about, Mm. when this revolution came up and Iran had a religious theocracy, right, people in Saudi Arabia, King Khalid got very threatened by this, right? First he thought, okay, there's this huge religious uprising in Iran, and uh, that means Shia power in Iran, and that means that the the Shia community in Saudi Arabia, the minority who lives in the east, as you know, where all the oil is, they might rebel against us. So that was a big concern. The second problem was that the very same year, 1979, um, a group of uh, really conservative Sunni Muslims Right? right, and they they decided they 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 announced that the Mahdi, the the Messiah in Islam who's supposed to come near end times had arrived to save humanity, and his name was Muhammad Abdullah Al Qahtani. That was his name. So they decided that since he's here, they went and they took over the Mecca Mosque. Why did they take over the Mecca Mosque? Because they felt like Saudi Arabia, which is the the Holy Land. This is the, you know the leader. Uh, they wanted the leader to be a proper custodian of the holy mosques in Mecca and Medina, they felt like Saudi Arabia wasn't living up to it. It it was too close to the Americans, right? Mm. It was uh, too focused on money and oil and everything. The monarchy had a lot of material excesses. They weren't religious enough. All of these issues were happening. So these are the two things that scared the crap out of King Khalid. The Iranian revolution. And the second thing was this uh, seizure of the Grand Mosque in Mecca. Eventually, they were able to... um, stave off both of them but only temporarily so what they did was king khalid at that time he became he started giving the religious authorities and the religious police in saudi arabia a lot more sort of free reign right so he's like go ahead at that point saudi arabia had movie theaters closed down all the movie theaters when i was living there the entire time there were no movie theaters in saudi arabia 
right? They they gave uh, religious authorities and the religious elements in the, in the in the community um, a greater political influence and greater role in government. The religious police or the mutawa, uh, which is a society for the promotion of virtue and the prevention of vice. That's actually what it's called. So the these guys. Um, where uh, essentially they could go out and just operate as regular police. They could arrest people. They could take them to their stations. They could do whatever they wanted to. Um, and uh, this kind of free reign allowed the monarchy to consolidate its power, right. um, to exploit religion as a way to consolidate its power, and also to control um, uh, the threat from religious rebels in in their own uh, in their country. So that actually. That this reaction was really, I think, 1979. This is when the proxy war really went on steroids. Right. right? So do you want to tell and, what, what happened and also when they the, captured the Saudi the was also newly uh, – it had also become very, very rich after 1973, hmm. after the Arab-Israeli war um, in, in 1973 when the uh, oil prices had really, really shot up. So at that point, the Saudis were doing it. And then another thing happened as if, you know, <laughs> the dominoes couldn't stop falling. Um, another thing happened is that uh, the U.S. Um, went to war against the Soviets. Before, in... before, before you uh -huh. go there, do you want to mention what happened in that they, they bought the bloodbath in Kaaba when in 1979? Yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, do you know any more details on it? Okay, like, so I the guy, the guy, the guy went and captured uh, Kaaba, and the Saudi authorities took permission from other religious because they were like, "Can we actually shoot at the Kaaba? Is that like a thing?" And they went and got permission to do that, and they got the permission, and they start, the Saudi army went in, they killed everybody, uh, there was blood over Kaaba everywhere, this was something that when I learned about, I was like, what the hell, like, and nobody told us that that happened, like, blood over, all over the Kaaba, like, what the hell, right, but they killed that Wahhabi guy, but they were scared enough to be like, okay, we need to give in to Wahhabi demands, right, they were like, um, fine, do you want... If you want religion to rule over everything, you have it. Just please don't do this again, right? And that's when Saudi Arabia became extremely more fundamentalist ever since then, right? I mean, um, give, you know, given relative to what was there. Yeah. Um, Interestingly, the, at that time when this happened, the mosque, the Haram Mosque of the Kaaba right. was under renovation uh, by the Saudi bin Laden group. So right. that's just so, a fun little <laughs> tidbit. <laughs> But Saudi Saudi changed very fast. Like everything started changing. Like women cov covering became a lot more uh, mandatory, the extreme. You had religious police, everything. But another thing that changed is is a, a competition started with Iran, right? And this is where the when we say Iran was most successful, right? Because Iran was like, okay, we have an Islamic Republic of Iran, but that's not where we're going to stop. We're going to export the revolution all over. The region, right? And um, Iran, you know, Khomeini. When Khomeini died, a lot of people think he died very successful because every almost he achieved a lot more than many people expected. He won many, you know, things that he was not supposed to. But it wasn't what he wanted. He thought that um, his revolution was going to go take over Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Lebanon, everywhere. But it was only successful in some other places outside of Iran, mostly in Lebanon, right? Which we which we got like Hezbollah, right? 
But that's the main place where outside of Iran, uh, the Islamic Revolution was exported very successfully. Uh, but but in response to that, Saudi Arabia is like, well, we're going to compete with that and export Wahhabi uh, ideology around the Middle East in competition to Iran's um, exporting of their ideology. And this is where we got all this terror stuff from because of as a competition to Iran, right? Because Saudi Arabia started building mosques and madrasas all everywhere, right? Like if you look at Pakistan, for example, the number of madrasas that were being built, like religious schools that were being built, the number of mosques, it just, like if you look at the graph, it looked like it looks like a hockey stick, right? Like it just went ex astronomically went higher, right? Right. So... And yeah, th this is so I want to like this is the part where I want to kind of slow down because it's really interesting to how this stuff came started coming to the US in a very direct way and how this ended up with the whole 9 11 thing right. and how it culminated in it. So, this process it started in the 70s. Saudi Arabia becomes more religious as a response to the Iranian Revolution and the siege of Mecca and all of that. Um, the Shia Sunni conflict, the political conflict, is now supported by lots of oil and lots of money. Okay, hmm. going on. Saudi Arabia uh, decides to start exporting its ideology, and as you said, they started building madrasas. Madrasas are religious schools hmm. um, throughout Pakistan. Now, what was Pakistan doing at that time? They were getting money from Saudi Arabia to build all these madrasas. Um, Pakistan had a military. Yeah. yeah, Pakistan had a military dictator in power at that time. His name was Ziaul Haq. Uh, he had killed the democratically elected prime minister, who wasn't very popular. Uh, well, I mean, he was very popular, but uh, you know, he killed him. His name was uh, Zulfikar Bhutto. He was Benazir Bhutto's uh, father. Hmm. And he had basically taken control and made Pakistan a dictatorship. Um, in Afghanistan, there were many people uh, who started fighting a jihad against the Soviets who were right north of them. So when they started fighting against the Soviets, the Soviets were atheists, right? They were godless people. And uh, they were trying to take over Afghanistan. So Afghanistan um, basically had a whole bunch of jihadis. Mm. Um, this is where the term, the, these people were called mujahideen. And mujahideen means the, those who wage jihad. Um, and their biggest supporters at the time were the United States. Because the United States um, found a lot of solidarity with the jihadis in Afghanistan because they were fighting a war against the Soviets. So it was a major, major front against the Cold War. So then uh, the uh, uh, Americans, what they started doing is they started giving a lot of money to Pakistan. Right. Right. Because so Pakistan was helping arm the Afghanis and they were helping like sort of fund this whole thing. And meanwhile, yeah. Pakistan was also getting a lot of money from Saudi Arabia and building all these madrasas. Mm. And Saudi Arabia was doing that with oil money that it was getting from the United States. Because the U.S. was buying lots of oil money and investing in like oil and Aramco and everything and, and over there. So suddenly everybody was very rich and there was a lot of uh, money behind this uh, religious theology, especially the Sunni, Saudi, Wahhabi, Salafist version of religious ideology. Now these madrasas, uh, what happens is they eventually, the you know, the Soviets, the Cold War ends, you know, the Afghans get their uh, independence and then the people, the students who were trained in these religious schools, the madrasas, with Saudi ideology, right? They grow up, they come of age, they get rid of the mujahideen, right? They're created essentially by Pakistani intelligence and Saudi money, um, and uh, they overthrow, uh, they take over Afghanistan. And these uh, people were called uh, the word for students in Arabic, 
in Persian and in Urdu, and the word for students, the students of the madrasas, is Taliban. A Talib is one student, a Taliban is a plural for students. Right. Um, so this is how uh, the, the Taliban were created. It was, a, it was a direct consequence of all of this. And after the Taliban were created at that time, I remember Osama bin Laden was part of this U.S.-supported war against the Soviets that was being fought in Afghanistan. He was one of the Mujahids in solidarity with the Mujahideen. Um, later, when the United States made its way into Saudi Arabia during the 1991 Gulf War, so 1991, Saddam Hussein goes and takes over Kuwait, right? Mm -hmm. uh, takes over their oil. Uh, the Americans freak out because obviously th that would mean that Iraq would become the biggest oil supplier in the world, essentially. Uh, a combination of Iraq and Kuwait. They want Saddam to get out of there, right? And right. Saddam at that time has been at war with Iran. We'll get into that in a little bit uh, previously to this. Um, and uh, the U.S., uh, their armies come into Saudi Arabia. I was there at the time, 91, 92. Wow. So around 1990, 1990 and 1991, right? So I was, I was in 12th grade at that time, 11th, 12th grade. Um, so the uh, American armies come into Saudi Arabia. Now, uh, Osama bin Laden, who had been part of the Mujahideen, become very, very religious, right? He has, uh, he suddenly had, the, I mean, there's a Salafist belief that the infidels cannot be in the Holy Land. Right. So, interestingly, he never talked about the Palestine issue, the Kashmir issue, any other like broader Islamic issues from 1996 when Al-Qaeda was formed until 1998. For the first two years, the only thing he talked about is why are the infidels in the Holy Land, the land of Mecca and Medina? They should not be here. Right. right? So, he, he wanted to get them out. And that was, so he got, uh, found solidarity with the Taliban, ended up uh, going to Afghanistan, plotting um, attacks against the U.S., declaring war against the U.S., blowing up the embassies in Africa in 1998, uh, the USS Cole, all of these, uh, that even the 1993 um, uh, uh, World Trade Center bombing, the attempted bombing of it. I mean, that, so that was one thing that, that preceded it. Right. But uh, all of this eventually de developed from that, and that's what ultimately so, led to 9-11. So um, can, I, can I add something here? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So... The thing that, is that was, by the way, sorry, that was really, really fast. I tried to summarize it as fast as I could. Right. right. So the the main point to remember is that the these people, these Wahhabis, they hate Shias, and the main the main point were of Saudi funding going to a lot of these people around Iran was, you know, to as a response to Iran's growing power in the region, right? But the the problem with the with the 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 way this backfire backfired on Saudi Arabia is unlike Iran because when Iran Iran managed to really have control over its you know when it sent out the Velayat Faqih version of um, Shia Islam around the places that it successfully did and again you have to understand that it works in different layers right you first you first look at the places that are already Shia, and then you convince them, you know, then you spread Velayat Faqih there, and then, you know, it's like, a, it's like a pyramid, right? And then from the people that are loyal to Iran, then a small percentage of it uh, will even fight for it or do, do its bidding, right? And that's why, but you lay the foundation, Shiism, then Velayat Faqih, then the people that will even die for you, right? But, if, um, which is a smaller percentage, but it's still big enough. Um, the point, the problem, 
the thing is that Iran ha managed to do this so effectively. There are people in Lebanon, in Syria, uh, in Iraq, in Bahrain, in Yemen that will give their lives for you know the leaders in, in, in different numbers in different places by the way a lot of people are like oh no that's not true in Yemen no or in this place or in that place no I'm talking different places have different numbers but they have they have that control they can call upon people that will you know pick up arms for uh, Khamenei but Saudi Arabia didn't do that effectively. It's just like, hey, madrasas, 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 Wahhabism. And the Wahhabis, they don't like the monarchs, right? They don't like, uh, they're like, yeah, they, they take their money and they spread Wahhabism, but they didn't spread loyalty to the Saudi government. They only spread Wahhabism. In fact, based on Wahhabi teachings, the Saudi government is one of the greatest evils out there, right? So the... What, what what Saudi Arabia created was a Frankenstein monster that will come and cr kill its own creator if it could, right? But it's, it was unlike, it wasn't like what Iran created, which was, which was like a dog on a leash, which Iran could point, you know, control every way it wants, right? The, the, if you, the greatest Wahhabi fundamentalists, if you give them enough power, they will go and, you know, kill Mohammed bin Salman if they, if they had the chance. Uh, which is very on, but so the thing is that uh, these whole when when ISIS and Al Qaeda was born out of these Wahhabi spreading Wahhabism. All, by the way, a lot of people in Pakistan say like before 1979, uh, the Sunnis in Pakistan they didn't like we didn't know that there was two kinds of us. Like we didn't like some of them do, but they didn't. A lot of people like we were just Muslim. We didn't know that we were Shias and Sunnis, right? Like we didn't know we were supposed to hate the Shias. Like a lot of these things was introduced to more people because of this whole divide between, you know, it, it, it spread to other places like Afghanistan and Pakistan because of uh, both of them trying to spread their ideology around. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying it didn't exist before this because it did. Like Shias and Sunnis have been fighting each other for hundreds of years, but it keeps going up and down a little bit. But because after 1979 is one of those went, times that it went really high up, right? So... Um, you know, we have like pictures of Muslims in Africa, for example, holding Khomeini's picture, which is which was sold as propaganda to us all over the uh, in Iran during our childhood. But but here's the thing: Khomeini died, you know, really hating Saudi Arabia. Like we did, we did not know this as kids, right? Khomeini's hate was for Saudi Arabia more than it was for Israel, more than it was for United States, more than it was for Saddam. More than anybody, Khomeini hated. Ever so, Khomeini went to war with. Um, yeah, this is. I'm gonna just one really quick to interrupt. Even today, you see that it's the same way the other way around. Saudi Arabia has formed an alliance with Israel so right. it could fight against Iran. So right. they will even go and get together with the Jews so they can fight they, the Shia. They will, they will make a pact. Saudi Arabia and the same if, way the other way around. If the devil shows up on Earth and goes to Saudi government and like, hey, I'm the actual devil and I can help you against Iran, the Saudi government will take that deal. Um, but the thing, so Khomeini was, Khomeini was very disappointed with Iraq because if, you can, if you're not successful in Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is at least, you know, at least say, well, Saudi Arabia is mostly Sunni, okay? But Iraq is mostly Shia. 
So that should have been like Iran thought like it could get the Shias in in Iraq to raise to rebel against that dom. Like how could you not? Like you're a Shia majority, you're being ruled by a Sunni minority. We are your Shia brotherhood. Like if if other Muslims all of a sudden realize that hey, we're this is a Shia revolution, not an Islamic revolution. We can't support this. Well, why can't the Muslims in Iraq support us? Why can't the Muslim in, Ira in Iraq say like, well, we are Shia. We can get behind this revolution. We could topple Saddam. It didn't happen. One thing that Khomeini tried and was unsuccessful is like Khomeini didn't like the Iran-Iran, you know, oh, we're Iran. This is for the glory of Iran. Khomeini was like, no, fuck that. This is Islam. But nationalism is so strong in Iran that it was it had to be used like against the war with Iraq it was something that it had to be tapped into because it was too powerful of a force not to get not to tap into so even Khomeini didn't like it this whole, whole we are the army of Hussein against the Yazid God makes to God makes with glorifying Iran against Iraq as well like so fuck you know fuck Iraq you know Iran for the win so because that's, that was there to take advantage of, all of this got mixed together, right? And the thing is that the Iraqis were also like, didn't, the Iraqis that were fighting on the side of Saddam, they also kind of saw this as like, no, this is not Shias coming and helping their fellow Shia brethren. This is Iran versus Iraq. So nationalism all of a sudden became a too strong of a force um, compared to religion for the Shias to, all, to be on... Khomeini side. They're like, no, fuck, uh, f fuck you, we're going to defend Iraq against Iran. This has nothing to do with Shia Sunni. But even though Khomeini, so the war ended and, you know, we were told throughout our childhood in Iran that, yeah, we won that war. Um, but we, and I thought like, okay, yeah, Iran won the Iran-Iraq war. But then when I came, left Iran, I realized they were, I, I realized that actually the Iraqis were told the same thing, that they actually won that war. But apparently nobody won that war, right? They both lost millions of uh, people and the borders stayed pretty much the same before uh, as like it was a useless war. Nobody won. Um, millions of young, very young children. Let me, Ali, let me, I don't know if you know this, but uh, so in Iran's army, there were children. They, they took children and they would put them at the front. They, they, they yeah, would use them they as put, minesweepers, right? They put, I know, they were landmines. Uh, they were human landmines, the kids. Right. And they put keys around them, yes. their necks. They were Plastic keys to heaven keys. because you're going to die and then this is your key to heaven. You're yes. going to go to heaven. The kids were told that today, you know, you, you like... In, this during I, the Iran-Iraq war. Yes, let, right? me, let me tell you. I can't tell you how many times my teachers, like I had many different teachers in Iran, uh, you know, and, and, you know, other people like shopkeepers that told us stories about the war, grown men will cry yeah, and s cry that they didn't die, that they didn't become martyr. Like they say that they weren't, they, they're upset that they weren't lucky enough to die so that they could be a martyr for Hussein. They were like, oh, my friend was so lucky and they would start crying. I'm like, oh, I didn't die. How I wish I was killed so I could have been a martyr. And they would like have tears, tears, right? But right. another thing, another thing that they did, people would like the kids and young people, like the young soldiers, like we're talking 14, 14, sometimes 12, okay? They will, mm. they, and you know, 
20, you know, many different, most of them very young. They would wake up in the middle of the night and they would see, like, they would, like, look, look, they would hire actors, Ellie, on a white horse in the middle of the night. A, a man on a white horse would show up. And they were like, and they were like, we were visited by Hussein. And people were like, holy shit, we're going to, I'm going to be a martyr today because I saw Hussein today. And they would go, and this is why, this is why, People thought this this was an easy win because Saddam Hussein had United States backing, had Saudi Arabia's backing. Iran had nothing. Iran just went through a revolution and the whole government, it was a new government. All the institutions had collapsed. People were like, this is an easy, this is why Saddam was so motivated to go into this war because this was like, Okay, they just had a new government. I'm just going to go pick up some land here with some, um, you know, you know, some very important land because they had the, the access to the Persian Gulf, some Khuzestan uh, with all this oil and everything. And we're like, okay, you guys, are, the whole government is like going through a crisis. Let's go pick up some land here. And every, like if, if anybody was a betting man, they would bet on Iraq's side. But Iran, they didn't win, but they didn't lose any land. And the reason why, because they had, they had a army, like, you know how you see an army of, of the dead? You know, you had people, you had millions of people that didn't have to be paid anything because they were all volunteers and they were all willing to die. Like the sea of people that showed up to fight against Iraq was unbelievable and you could only get that with religious indoctrination because they were not paid they were all volunteers and they were all willing to die iraq did not have anything like that they had better weapons they had saudi and united states backing but they didn't have a sea of people that that were not afraid of dying right um and that's why iran didn't lose uh, but, yeah but go on no, I, I was just saying, did you already talk about the the most interesting thing to me is why the Iran-Iraq war started. Right, go on. Right, just and and what happened with the Iraq war that, that Bush waged and how Iran ultimately won that war with the help of the U.S., which is... Which war? Like, well, I mean, uh, okay, so I'm getting ahead of myself. The Iran-Iraq war basically started because after the revolution in Iran... Oh, you're talking about, you're getting closer to now. I'm, no, I'm talking about 1980 when the Iran-Iraq war started. Okay, okay. So you are going to compare that to the Iraq invasion later? I, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to talk about how it came full circle and how Okay, go on. You how do that Iran because... essentially played the US right. in, in in a lot of ways and this is something that a lot of well, people don't like hearing. It didn't even have to play them. It was gifted to them. But go on. That's exactly Yeah, exactly. They, yeah. they essentially okay, it was gifted to them. Go on. And and, and this is one of the reasons why there was no Shia coming out and protesting Bush's Iraq war. Anyway, the, so so what happened was Iran and Iraq. So Iranian Revolution happens right before that. Iraq, Iran, they you know they enjoy oh, a decent one relationship. Thing, one thing can I just add? Um, Iran had when Iran at some point during the war was was winning a lot, was winning a lot, and they got greedy because. The United Nations came and they were like, let's let's sign a peace agreement, right? And Iran was like, why would you sign a peace agreement? We're winning. So they didn't. And then all of a sudden, Saddam had a comeback. And Saddam, Iran had took over a lot of land. By the way, you, you said penis agreement. Did I? Those are the, yeah, you did. That was hilarious. Okay, penis, whatever. I said <laughs> peace, I said peace <laughs> agreement. 
No, you said penis agreement. Okay. Hey, uh, patrons, did anybody hear that? Or people listening? Didn't Ar- did Armin your, not say penis that's agreement? That's your fucked up mind. I thought it was fucking hilarious. Another anyway, say, make, uh, we got a super chat. Make leaders smoke weed and talk their differences. Okay. Have you, have you seen Nader? Have you seen the Ali G, the first Ali G Thank movie? Thank you for Ali the G super the chat. Allergy in the house is uh, it's it's premised on that. It's about world leaders solving problems by smoking weed. Um, okay. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, what, Ellie? You ruined my chain of thought. Okay. <laughs> so we had. Um, <laughs> fuck. What was I saying? I know. All on. right. So we had. They had an. They Iran had took over a lot of land, and they were like very confident. And if you listen to a lot of the songs, right, the, the that they were singing during when they were winning, they like to. Tomorrow in Karbala and after that in Quds. So, so they they were so they were so confident. They thought like, okay, we're gonna get Karbala. The whole point was to get Karbala. Karbala was in Iraq, and Karbala is the holy where is where Hussein died, and that's the holiest place for Shia Muslims. And a lot of Mus- a lot of Shia Muslims, I, I would argue that for Shia Muslims, Karbala is more important than Kaaba, than than Mecca. They won't admit that, but that's the truth. Okay, and the fact that a Sunni government holds Karbala is an insult to Shia to Shia Muslims and they were like we're gonna take Karbala like they were so and then after they take like they they think they're gonna take Karbala they were gonna take Kaaba and Mecca from Saudi Arabia and eventually they will take Quds Jerusalem from Israel they're like we're gonna go all the way man like nothing is gonna stop us right so yeah but but so that's why they didn't say say uh, yes to the peace agreement but then Saddam all of a sudden had a comeback took over a lot of the back, a lot of the lands that Iran took. And then at that point, the United Nations, everybody else come like, come on guys, you're losing. You are in- let's, uh, no. before we, let, let's just. No, let, me, I, let me finish I, this thought. Let me finish yeah, your yeah. thought. And Khomeini, then the, the people came to Khomeini and said like, we can't do this anymore. It's been eight years of war. We have to sign the peace agreement. And Khomeini said that, uh, that he's going to drink the, the jam of poison, the the cup of poison, right? Uh, just like uh, Socrates, right? Uh, like before he signs a peace agreement. Like no, no. I mean, no. He said like his his signing of the peace agreement was him drinking drinking poison, poison, yeah. poison, and he signed it reluctantly. And ever since then, he wasn't seen that outside speaking anymore. Like that, I think depressed the hell out of him. Uh, but uh, go on, Ali. You wanted to say something. Yeah, no, I just wanted to set the, the stage for uh, how this all happened. So in 1979, the, the revolution happened, the Iranian revolution happened. Right. Um, now, Iran was obviously was ruled by the Shah for the longest time, and now, you know, Khomeini's in power, right? Oh, Religious Beej, theocracy. Beej is saying she went back and she heard peace. So it's I know, and I responded to that. I said that you said it a few times. <laughs> okay. I'm pretty sure one of them was peanut, but it could be a connection issue. But no, either it's just way, your, it's just your. I mind. thought it was. <laughs> anyway, that that's that will be a mystery. I I will uh, I will check again, and maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> okay. I thought I heard it. Anyway, um, right. so again, <laughs> I've been trying to get this out for a while. Right. So yeah, so what happens is that uh, Iran is obviously majority Shia, right? Over ninety percent. Right. Now Iraq is also majority Shia. So Iraq is about 65 to 70% right. Shia, but has historically always been ruled by a Sunni leader. Right? So Saddam Hussein was ruling Iraq. He was a he was a, he was a dictator. Mm-hmm. Sunni, he ran the his Yazid. party was called the Ba'ath the Ba'ath party. Right. Um in in Iraq, very powerful. They taken mm-hmm. power by force. 
obviously, and they were the, the Sunnis enjoyed a lot of benefits. The Shias were the majority, but they generally were not as socioeconomically well off as the Sunnis, and and they didn't really have as many rights. They, they were basically oppressed. Um, at, at least they, you know, they. So there's it, that's pretty documented. So what happens is that um, uh, when uh, Iran becomes a Shia powerhouse, right, then Saddam gets a little concerned. He's like, you know, okay, now I've got like sixty-five to seventy percent of my people are Shia. They're probably going to be like influenced, or they're probably all galvanized and excited and adrenalized by this whole Iranian revolution thing. So now this is a, a bit of a threat to me. So he even made it, he even praised the Iranian revolution as a political move. And when he did that, Khomeini basically said. Yeah, whatever. Fuck you. Yeah. Like he rejected the praise, right. and that pissed off Saddam Hussein. Right. So there were an issue. So they basically they made a big deal about this this waterway. They shared some water supply uh, along one of their borders, Iran and Iraq, and um, he, he essentially made it about that a territorial dispute. And then the, both of the countries went to war, and Saddam Hussein attacked Iran, and uh, Iran yeah. actually I think was happy about it. Khomeini was very happy about it because even though. Saddam realized very early on that this was a mistake, that he should not have done this. This was causing a lot of issues. Right. Um, after, uh, the, when the war ended, he was uh, the reason he one of the reasons he attacked Kuwait and he tried to take over Kuwait is because his his right. uh, resources, but, but, his, the riches had been so depleted by the time the war ended. Right. Because Khomeini had prolonged it. Khomeini looked at this as yeah. a jihad, and he was happy to send kids. He was happy to use kids as landmines. And and do whatever and made it a big jihad nice. against, uh, yeah. yeah. But now what's, uh, yeah. Sorry. So what's interesting is that Saddam was actually concerned, and at that time the U.S. was more in support of Saddam, right? The U.S. was supporting you. Everybody's seen those pictures of Rumsfeld and Cheney, you know, um, holding hands with, uh, shaking hands with uh, Saddam Hussein and hugging him and everything like that. So the U.S. was supporting. Uh, Iraq at the time because the U.S. was a great Satan according to Iran. Right. So, so now what happens is that after all of this is over, right? The then the Iraq uh, Iraq takes over Kuwait. You have the first Gulf War in '91, and then later on you have 9/11. And then after 9/11, about 12 years after the first Gulf War, 11 years after the first Gulf War, uh, Bush's son decides to go back into Iraq, and uh, you know get rid of Saddam Hussein. Right. And then once he does that. All of the Shia Iranians, the uh, Sistani, all of these guys are quiet. They're like, okay, come on in. Because what did the Iranians want to do when they came into power in 1979? Is that they wanted a, a, a nice, strong, robust belt of Shia influence right. across the Arab world. Right. right? They had that, so they wanted the population of Iraq. Now, what was going to happen with the Gulf War that Bush did? That Iraq now was going to become a democracy. That was the goal. If it became a democracy, 70% Shia population, Iraq would become another Shia-ruled state that would form an alliance with Iran. Right. So Iran was happy. They're like, holy shit, this is what we kind of wanted all along, and now the U.S. is giving it to us on a platter? Right? right. Even though they supported the other side for eight years? So so the, the this kind of thing, this is one thing that Bush astoundingly did not understand, and Americans did not understand, but a lot of Shias were, I mean, they couldn't believe what was happening. Right. They're like, this is exactly what uh, Iran wanted the whole time. This is exactly why they went to war with Iraq. Uh, and the U.S. supported Iraq at that time. And now that that war is over, the U.S. just comes back and is like, oh, here you go. You know, you wanted Iraq to be a Shia-ruled, Shia-majority country that could form an alliance with you? Here you go. We're handing it to you. 
take Actually, this. the Saudis were warning United States, like the Saudis were begging United States not to attack Saddam. And yeah. they were like, you're, you're handing over this country to Iran if you do this. Like, and United States ignored that, right? Saudis yeah. were so frustrated at that time with United States. And, you know, there's two things that we saw on TV that sh to me was highlighted how significant, how big of a win this was for Iran. You know, when I saw in, in Baghdad posters of Khamenei and Khomeini go up, yeah. I was like, holy shit, it, this was Khomeini's wet dream. What they could, <laughs> this what they could not achieve by eight years of war, millions of kids dead, b so much blood, money, sacrifice, every all of it, Iran couldn't achieve, and all of a sudden they just stood back, and then the Shia, like they saw like, Baghdad is ours, like they didn't have yeah. to do with nothing, right? And the, yeah. the but the but it's not really nothing because Iran did invest. Throughout this time, Iran spread po its politics all over the Middle East. Like it, Iran invested in building connections all over where Shias were dominant, right? So when, when Saddam fell, Iran already had all its tentacles in the right place in, in Iraq for it to be able to take advantage of that. Another thing that was significant that showed when we saw on tv and the shia world watched on tv with awe and hope okay because you have to understand saddam did not let shias do the ashura do the sinazani do the all the you know all the shia rituals in karbala where the shias wanted to do for many many years they weren't able to do in such a big way under under Saddam, right? Because Shia Islam is so dangerous. It's a rebellious. It's Shia Islam is is perfect for rebellion. When you get so many Shias in a place, and they say "fuck Yazid," you know we're the army of Hussein. People know what you mean when you say Yazid, because if you're living under Saddam, Yazid is dog whistle for Saddam. Or whoever is ruling over you, when you say we're going to kill Yazid, that's dog whistle for whoever is in power there. And you have so many people there saying that they were willing to die for, for Hussein. And that's just a perfect climate for, you know, if you could say like, hey, you could get together for religious gatherings, but you can't get together to, as a protest against me. Well, guess what? People getting together as a religious gathering could technically be like like that turn into uh, a protest against you that's why they're very sensitive about shia's rituals by the way we got two super chats that you have to read but uh, i read do them, but, yeah and I'll, I'll read them right now they're actually but, both from uh nader alcom and nader alcom is saying the first one he said uh, your show deserves more viewers such high quality thank you nader i mean we thank you so don't much. even feel we feel like we're just kind of sitting in the living room and chatting so it's okay. uh, i mean it's amazing that people want to listen to us thank you uh, so the much, second Nader. one 
yeah, he said that he had to go. Have a good night, night. Uh, thank you for enlightening the mind. Right. Uh, thanks again, other. And remember, you can come back and you can listen to this. This is public; it'll be available. So, but thank if you, you have to leave, you can catch up on it. But later. thank you so much for the donations. We do really need it for the show, so I really appreciate yeah. it. But anyways, really let me it. let me let me tell you what happened when when Get back. with the first when Saddam was not there, the first Ashura, the Shias showed up in. Mm -hmm such numbers i don't know what the numbers were but it it was because this was like finally karbala is back to the is, is in shia hand now karbala the holiest place on earth for shias again a lot of shias would say deny this they say no just like other muslims mecca is the holiest place on earth for us it's a, it's not true karbala is the holiest place for shias and now saddam has fallen and it's in the hands of Shias, and now it's Ashura, and they could do the rituals properly without anybody telling them not to. And thousands of people showed up. The number, the, the scene was so, the numbers of people that showed up to do all the rituals, it was being broadcasted, and it moved Shias all around the world watching their TV, it moved them to tears that we have Karbala now. And the Shias themselves were shocked about how many Shias are in, in, in Iraq and how many of them are so passionate about Shia Islam. And it inspired all of them that, yes, we are a Shia brotherhood. So in Iraq, this is a, by the way, the nationalists in Iraq are like, no, fuck this shit. What is Iran doing in our country? We are independent. Iran has no right to meddle. Right. So the, again, a lot of people might hear this. Iraqis might come and hear this. They're like, what are you saying, Armin? This is not true. Uh, we don't like Iran meddling in our countries. We're fucking tired of Iran meddling in our politics. But again, everybody remember, everybody will try to make their opinion as if it's a majority opinion. OK, the truth is that Iran, the only reason why Iran has so much influence in Iraq is because a lot of people in Iraq see themselves as part of Iran, right? Mm. And again, this is Ali. This is a, a different discussion. This is why a lot of people, a lot of um, neo-Zoroastrian, anti-Islamic, pro-Persian empire um, Iranians are. Some of them are now backing this government because they're seeing that the the whole Persian empire that they were hoping for hoping for this government is seemed to be closer to it than ever before and that's why some of them are tempted to back back up this government right but the thing is that do you want to explain the shia crescent and why that's so scary to you have to understand that iran is doing all of this all over all over the middle east even though the shias are minority in islam like what what is the percentage of shias compared to the uh, 20% 20% so or that's yeah but the thing is that the Shias are more united than the Sunnis. And that's why even though they're 20%, they seem to be becoming more and more influential over, all over the Middle East. And right. also, also because even though 80, Sunnis are supposed to be 80%, a lot of that 80% is in Indonesia and Malaysia too. So it becomes a little bit more balanced if you look at the middle east right right but so but but, you, but the thing is like that regional influence like you know we're talking about the islamic crescent across um the middle east right now so you have iran you have iraq uh, there are several other um, shia majority countries um or countries that have a large proportion of shias uh, like uh, bahrain you know is one of them uh, there are a lot of uh, shias in lebanon and syria right. so 
uh, and like you know the Alawis are also considered Shias, technically. Right. So like Bashar al-Assad and his whole. But, um, but do you want to do you want to explain what? Okay, the the countries where Iran is becoming more and more influential. By the way, anybody that tells you this is politics and not religion. Tell them to go fuck themselves because it's so obviously both. And the fact that Iran's influence keeps gr growing exactly where the Shias are the uh, majority. Like, is that like a coincidence? Like, everybody thinks that has nothing to do with religious. Like, people that want to say like, oh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, it's just about oil and politics, has nothing to do. Like, a lot of Shias and Sunnis that want to, like, promote so Shia-Sunni unity, they try to keep telling you that this is just politics. It has nothing to do with about the divide between Shias and Sunnis, right? Yeah, but it was interesting. Like uh, uh, Obama once said that you know this is a conflict that has been going on for fourteen hundred years, right. or for millennia, and people were really upset. They're like, right. no, this is not that. This started with Saudi Arabia. Right. But it was well, he was absolutely right. It hasn't right. been going on for millennia. This is a religious conflict. No, but if people, it was... when people say this is politics, uh, not religion, they don't understand that Islam is... It's, it's a false it's, dichotomy. It's a political uh, religion. Is... It's like... What... It's... <laughs> yeah, go on. That's a, just really quick. Politics and religion, you know, what, what makes something political? Right. Okay, when you have a nationalistic sort of element in your thing, like Abrahamic religions have that all, all the time, right? right. You have uh, the, um, uh, the, the you've got Zionism nationalistic movement. Jihad is a nationalistic driven movement, right? When you have claims to territory, okay, right. they have that as well. You have caliphates, I you mean, know, you've got holy lands. When you have heaven and hell reward and punishment as a way to manipulate people into mass forms of behavior. Manipulate right. the masses into behaving a certain way. That is immediately political. So all, all of the apocalypse, all of this stuff is all. It's all political. Anything has to do with land. I mean, so so there's no. Um, now, now the thing is the advantage where the intersection of uh, ethnicity and religion comes into play is exactly this. And I'll just explain it this way. Um, when uh, Iran goes out and they start talking about how they want to wipe Israel off the map. Okay, this happens all the time. Now, if you think about it, will Iran develop nuclear weapons? Will they ever go and attack Israel? Ali, okay. you have 10 minutes to hard ending and I have so much to say. Okay, I'm going to get to that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, no. We're, we're now transitioning into like the sort of the current situation. Okay. Uh, so Armin, even though the guys, even though I have a hard stop at about 10 minutes, Armin, if you want to go on, you totally can. I can't do it because without I know you. Have... Yeah, you can. Uh, you can do it, or or we can come back for a part two. No, the, no, the guys... we have to finish this because we've we said this. it's a three part series. Can you okay, just okay. say for like tw thirty minutes? Instead I'll of... say for t no, no, okay. I'll say for ten minutes. Oh, so we have twenty minutes from now, and then okay, we'll, go we'll fast, fast, fast. Because but sure. No, wait, let me. This is okay. very, very important. Okay, to go this, on. Right. So, um, what was I talking about, Armin? I I forgot. <laughs> 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 okay. No, I was saying when Iran talks about wiping Israel off the face of the earth, right? right? So when they say that, Iran is not realistically going to go and bomb Israel with a nuke. Why are they not going to do that? Because when they do that, they're going to basically mostly kill Palestinians. It's a, such a small area. And that's what's going to happen. They cannot do that. But what they will do is they will scream out and they will say that we want to erase the Jews. We want to kill the Jews. We want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Now, what happens with that? What happens with that is that there are all these dictators in Arab countries who don't want to speak up against Israel. MBS doesn't want to speak up against them. CC doesn't speak want to speak up against them. But the people, their people, the people in Saudi Arabia, 
don't like Israel. The people in Egypt, a lot of the Arabs and the right. Muslims over there don't like them. They want their mm. leaders, they want their Arab dictatorial reader, leaders to say the kind of stuff that Iran is saying. Right. But they, their, their leaders don't say it. So Iran comes out looking to these Arabs like, okay, the Arabs are suddenly saying, look, Ahmadinejad is going and saying all this stuff. He's denying the Holocaust. He's saying all this stuff about Israel. Why don't our leaders have the balls to do it? Now, what happens there is that Iran can use religion to solidify its influence because, again, these Arabs are never going to become Persian. It's right. not going to happen. Their ethnicities are not going to change. So but they can become Shia. That in Hamas, right? Hamas is a very hardcore Sunni organization. Like Palestinians are overwhelmingly Sunni, right? But Iran has a lot of influence over there, and Iran, the the Shia thing works very well. Hezbollah is the military Shia arm of Iran, um, and they are very revered by people in Palestine. People oh love God, Hezbollah. I have so much to say, and you're not giving me time. All right. no, but this is important. Okay, this yeah, but you said it, that... but you said it. But you have a super No, no, chat. no, whoa, 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 wait. This is, so this is kind Speak of the, faster. the, yeah, this is, this is the crux of it, right? Okay. So this is the crux. So now you have all of these insane alliances over there. You've got hardcore Muslim Brotherhood backed like Hamas and their supporters who are getting loads of support from Iran in the form of Hezbollah. And Hezbollah is an Iranian arm, which is also Arab, not Iranian, but they're an Arab arm. And they were the only ones to have, uh, who Arabs think actually held uh, Israel off in 2006 in that war. They feel like they actually have a, a lot of things. So Iran is also fighting, uh, 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 like Iran is yes. also fighting this. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to get into all this. There's so many tangles. There's no, but, Yemen, but you, there's you, ISIS, there's... Yeah. We're talking, but you get the idea in terms yes, of how Iran uses religion to um, to extend its influence. All right, I'm going to read the super chat because you're ethnicity. too slow. Sohan is give us two two dollar super chats. Thank you, Sohan. It says it's politics, not nationalism. We put it in quotation marks. I think you're saying that's what other people say. Thank you, Sohan, for your uh, for your super chat. All right, I'm I'm really going to go quickly over the many things that I wish I had more time to explain in detail, but. Um, I'm going to put them all together as to show why it looks, why Iran might, um, looks to have the upper hand here today and going forward, and what are the weaknesses of Iran going forward, right? So if you look at the what what people refer to as the Shia Crescent, right? And this is why when when Saudi Arabia looks at a map and looks at Iran's influence in the region, when they become so paranoid, because if you look at the Shia Crescent, you have Iran. And you could look at the influence of Iran. They now have Iraq. Okay, so Saddam fell, made Iraq, uh, she uh, made Iraq uh, a puppet of Iran, technically. In Syria, where as if Assad had fell, that would have been bad for Iran because Assad is Shia ruling over Sunnis, but Assad stayed. So Saddam, which was beneficial for Iran to fall, fell. Assad, which was beneficial for Iran to stay because now Assad stayed thanks, stayed. To, st thanks to Iran's support. And now be because it was thanks to Iran's support, Syria became now a, more of a puppet of uh, Iran. But this, Iran, sca yeah. this, this scares the shit out of Israel because now Iran has a direct land because from Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Israel. Like you don't, you could just take an Uber all the way. Uh, you know, then not Uber, but... You know, you get my point, but and the problem but, is but, like the Sunni powerhouse yeah. in Syria, 
the Sunni powerhouse in Syria and, and Iraq, the people who are fighting Assad and all these Iran allies are ISIS. So you right. can't side with ISIS if you want to propose right. Iran. No, so Iran, that's also another is, problem. This is why Iran loved the fact that ISIS grew because Iran used like learned this from um, United States. Like we're here because we're fighting ISIS. We're here because we're fighting ISIS. Like we're here because we're fighting terrorists. Like you need us to fight ISIS. And then ISIS fell and like yeah, but we're not leaving, <laughs> right? So we, we came <laughs> here to Obama fight. Obama had to like no. we're not we're just not getting involved in Syria. Like we're no. screwed. We've got. So, you know, back no. Assad on one side. We've got the ISIS. Ali, you're not letting me speak. Okay, so Iran, Iran went there to fight ISIS, but when ISIS fell, Iran is like, we're not leaving anymore. This is our home now. Okay, yeah. so now Iran has base, military bases and everything. All of, and this is why ISIS, Israel is like looking at United States like, are you looking? Are you seeing this? Like, why are you not doing anything? They're like right next door to us, and the US is like, hey, sorry, we 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 we. With Iraq war, there's no more any any of us that brings a war anymore. We're not going to win elections anymore, right? So because people in the United States are tired of war, maybe that's why you could suggest war in second terms of your presidency instead of your first term. Because if you introduce it in your first terms of pre presidency, your chances of re-elections are much lower. Anyway, so you have the Shia Crescent, but the Shia Crescent goes all the way down Saudi Arabia. So this is right above Saudi Arabia, and you have Iran into the east of Saudi Arabia, but then you go all the way. Bahrain, like even to east of Bahrain, is majority Shia. This is why people the, and ruled by Sunnis. That's why it's, it's scary to Bahraini people. And then you go right and under. You have Yemen. Yemen is yeah. mostly Shia, and that becomes another proxy for uh, Iran. And that's why all, um, you have the war in Yemen. You, are, going you on, have yeah. the war in Yemen going on because the war in Yemen is a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and that's why all the 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 greatest humanitarian crisis of our time right now is happening in Yemen because of the proxy war between Shia, Shia Iran, and Sunni. Uh, Sunni Saudi Arabia, but and also the, and a few examples of how Saudi Arabia is, is how Iran is good at playing politics, and in, in around it, and using its pawns. All they, Iran has so many proxies. Like I, there's a list. You just keep losing. Like the most famous one is Hezbollah, but you also have Hashtashabi. You have uh, Hashtashabi. Yeah, um, all over. You know, you have so many different groups and they're all you know in Iraq in Lebanon in Yemen um, and Iran is playing them very well Saudi Arabia sucks at this game and here are three examples of how it's how it sucks uh, first of all Saudi Arabia thought the war it could win the war in Yemen like like this in th in three weeks but it couldn't even win it in three years even though Saudi Arabia has the most advanced weapon weaponry the the did the, the the largest weapons deal in history with United States has the most advanced the most newest uh, um, you know military equipment it can't Saudi Arabia can't even beat the Houthis and the Houthis have nothing the Houthis don't even have shoes okay and Saudi Arabia cannot beat them like after years of war and then think about it like if you can't beat the Houthis are you, what are your chances against Iran Iran was the, defeated ISIS all over the Middle East so if the Iran is so, so so successful and you can't even beat the Houthis like it shows if it makes people think like Iran has the upper hand and Iran loves that Saudi Arabia is wasting so much money in Yemen it knows because of Saudi ego they can't leave because they can't leave as if they don't win and they're wasting millions of dollars billions of dollars in Yemen money that they don't have they're spending it and Iran loves it that they're wasting so much money there Saudi Arabia kidnapped 
the Prime Minister of Lebanon. They, like what the like they kidnapped the Prime Minister of Lebanon because Iran's power play in Lebanon again. This is very complicated. In, that, by the way, was one of the most comically. Right, ridiculous stories I've ever seen. So I, I couldn't believe it was actually happening. Yeah, right. I couldn't. I was like, "What the hell is that?" Like, so, but it was so, such a disaster. Like Saudi Arabia it, it, and, and and backfired on them because in Lebanon, if you look at what the the because Lebanon to avoid civil war, they came up with a weird deal that uh, the the uh, how does it work? The 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 head of the parliament has to always be Shia. The prime minister has to always be Sunni. Uh, and the uh, president has to always be Christian. Did I get that right? Yes, I got that right. Um, I think I got that right, right? So the Something like that. The prime, you know, that's right. The prime minister is Sunni, right? And the parliament, the head of the parliament is Shia. So that's obviously Iran's proxy. And Saudi Arabia was like, okay, well, prime minister is Sunni, so that's our proxy. So when they see Hariri, which is the prime minister in Lebanon, go and starts becoming making deals, make, having meetings with Iran, and trying to become closer to them. Saudi Arabia is like, what the fuck? Like, the Sunni part, of, like, Iran has already so much control over Lebanon. And now the Sunni part, the Sunni part is also now speaking to Iran and making, like, playing footsies with them. So they're like, hey, Hariri, come to Saudi Arabia. We want to talk to you. And he comes to Saudi Arabia. And all of a sudden he goes, he, he's kidnapped. He, like, they, they take him hostage and they put a camera in front of him. And he has he has to read off a script, and he's like, Iran, Iran should stay out of Lebanon. And it was so obvious, it was so obvious that people were like making jokes on social media, like, hey, telling their prime minister to like blink twice if he's being taken hostage. But it was so embarrassing that they had. But Hezbollah, the Shia parts of Lebanon, the Shia power in Lebanon, they played it very well because they because Saudi Arabia was hoping that this is going to cause a civil divide, a civil war in Lebanon between Shias and Sunnis, and Shia Shias were like, no, when it comes to foreign powers, we're all Lebanese. There is no Shia Sunni, right? So they're like, we're all. So a lot of Sunnis were impressed with their with Hezbollah, which are Shias, that they're like. We're 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 uniting with our Sunni brothers and sisters, and we want our prime minister back. They're like we have we have political conflicts with Sunnis in in Lebanon, but that's an internal poli political divide. When it comes to foreign power, we're all Lebanese united, and we're gonna demand our prime minister back. And what Saudi Arabia did backfired because instead of dividing Sunnis and Shias in Lebanon for the first time, Sunnis and Shias were united more than ever before again, more than ever before against Saudi Arabia in such a way that the Sunnis in Lebanon were against Saudi Arabia. So it really backfired on Saudi Arabia that move. So Yemen backfired. Yemen, the decision by Saudi Arabia and Yemen backfired. The decision in Lebanon kidnapping the prime minister backfired, and the Qatar, the Qatar blockade. That fuck that back like these people. I don't know who's working, who's giving advice to Saudi regime to just wake up and decide to like, hey, let's blockade, put a blockade on Qatar. That's not gonna backfire, right? So they're like, Qatar is getting too close to Iran. We can't have that. Nobody deals with Qatar is going to become isolated if we stop dealing. If like, let's get our all Sunni buddies like Egypt, um, everybody. Um, all the Sunni countries get together like fuck you Qatar you have to apologize you have to close Al Jazeera because Al Jazeera is very like Qatar was also playing footsie with um, Muslim Brotherhood 
and which is which Saudi Arabia also hates and so like they like you have to close down Al Jazeera you have to never deal with Iran again you have to do this do this do this unless the blockade will stay and Qatar are like fuck that we're not going to do any of that keep your blockade and because of that blockade Qatar actually it benefited Qatar's economy because they started exploring other countries and they became they relaxed the like barriers to trade with other countries and became a more open economy and now Qatar is in a stronger position and they pushed them even closer to Iran because of that even though Qatar is Sunni so that yeah. backfired so all Sohan of Sohan the- D'Souza um, from Sohan we've got a super chat I read that and he's saying yeah it's politics not nationalism no, I read that already and, oh you did okay go yeah but and you know, and the last reason why Iran looks like it has an upper hand is Palestine. Okay, what Ali mentioned: Palestine is a political tool. All right, like Iran loves using like the you know the only way to get Sunni backing by Iran because Iran has Shiism and like you get Shias to back you because Iran is Shias and you know everybody else is Sunni, but Iran wants to. In, increases dominance even to in Sunni areas, and the way you sell your you do you, you do your PR in Sunni areas is by being by you know this is what Turkey is now getting behind us doing better as well by acting like the only champions that has the backing of Palestine against Israel right and this is why Israelis don't understand how important this is uh, when it comes to winning the hearts and mind of. All Muslims, not regardless of being Shias and Sunnis. Because when you are so afraid of Iran that you start getting close to Israel, then you you lose your, you know, you, were, you know, Iran has built all these connections everywhere and you try to do the same thing. Well, you lost the game. If you get close to Israel, you become the devil in the minds of all the Muslims, regardless of being Shia and Sunni, right? And Iran, you know, this is why I know Iran wants the Palestinians to suffer, okay? Iran wants the Palestinians to suffer because their suffering is one of the most powerful political tools. All the Arab world wants the Palestinians. Like, they benefit from it. Hamas benefits from it. They do use... They admitted... They have admitted that they use um, uh, Palestinian children as human shields. They have put out... There's videos of them telling people to come out on the rooftops during Israeli bombardment with their kids so that the Israel uh, doesn't bomb them when right. it sees the kids they that's why they they strike from you know within hospitals and schools like that so right. it's if you are pro-palestinian right and I I support I'm pro-palestinian in terms of supporting the Palestinian people you have to be in opposition to Hamas right you have to you have to be against Hamas as much as you're uh, against anything else. So read read the super chat, and I'm gonna. I just have two closing remarks. Okay. Read the super chat. You're you're muted. You're muted. Oh, there's another super chat. Yes, Sohan. Oh, okay, so oh, it's from it's from Sohan. So Sohan again, um, he's saying it's politics, not nationalism, was meant to be analogous to the it's politics, not religion canard. Yeah, oh. I, I agree with you. I mean, that's what people say like when you say it's politics not religion or it's politics not nationalism or it's poli- it's culture not religion or whatever it's basically like saying uh it, it wasn't falling out of the plane that killed you it was the ground hmm. uh, right. it's i mean both of them are are factors right right so so cl- closing remarks is that you just have to understand if you when you look at iran 
Okay. Iran, Iran's um, the 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 Shia, the Shia the the Shia fundamentalists in Iran. Again, this is not all of Iran, but the people with um, the, the the IRGC, the Sepai Pastoran, and the people, the Vilayat Faqih people, the Shorai Nagahbon, all of those people. The understanding that they have is that it's not about Iran. Okay, this is about the Islamic Revolution and exporting it and it's a service to humankind to export this is a gift from Imam Zaman to Iran it started in Iran and it will take over right and if you look at what I what I always mention like you look at what the the CIA equivalent to in Iran is called Quds the Quds army right so what do you have in Iran the, the, the branch of the IRGC that is responsible for foreign activity, foreign intervention, for spying, for all of that, is named after Quds, which is Jerusalem, because that's their final destination. The, idea, the, the, the goal of these people is not just to protect Iran from, from foreign power. The goal of these people is to take over Karbala. Karbala belongs to, Shia, to Shias, to take over the two the two holy cities which is medina and mecca they should not be in the hands of the non-muslims which are the sunnis the people uh the, the, you know the, those lands will one day they think belong to iran they will take jerusalem one day from israel that land should not belong to the jews it not, should not belong to israel the, these are the lands that they will take and the, the interesting thing is that some new movements on Iran, some this is why some nationalists in Iran, you have to understand, in Iran, you na nationalist types are usually anti-religious, right? Um, but there are some elements of the nationalist group that even though they're anti-Islam in Iran, are being sympathetic to this. Because the lands that are Shia are also the lands that used to be the Persian Empire before Islam took over. And these nationalist type think Iran is not what you see on the map today. The one the, the one that looks like a cat. They said that's not Iran. They when they think when they think Iran, they're looking at the map during uh Dariush or uh, you know during the Hakomanishi dynasty, right? That's Iran. And the, the, if, if all of these Shia parts be belongs to the Iran, it looks very closely to that map. So some of these nationalist types want, want to support this government to bring all those lands back to Iran. Uh, or at least make it proxies of Iran. The last closing remark that I have is to bring all these three episodes together from the what started all to where we are at. Is that you have to, you have to see the influence of these stories and these, these ideas is basically if you put it all together you could argue that we right now we have the greatest humanitarian crisis in our lives in happening in Yemen in Yemen uh, you have terrorist organizations rising up from the middle east because of the the proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia you have people we trying have, to establish caliphates you have people all of this happened because Aisha lost her necklace Yes. Rice? Oh God! What a wonderful way to end it. <laughs> All of this happened because Aisha lost, lost her, necklace. her necklace. And now, for those who haven't heard the first part, you can go back and listen to part one, and you'll understand exactly. 
All of this happened when Muhammad's wife, Aisha, his youngest wife, lost her necklace in the desert, got left behind in a caravan, right. and today everything that you have can eventually be traced back to that incident. The secular jihadists have been made possible thanks to the Illuminati and the covert support of Israel and the CIA. That's what we have been told, but we haven't received our checks yet. If you like what we do, please support us. Share the podcast with your friends, write and tweet us with topic and guest suggestions, or head over to secularjihadists.com and give a dollar or more for exclusive access to live video. Have your questions read and answered on the air and more. Till next time, may the flying spaghetti monster be with you.